You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. And when you find that spot, I want you to turn over to Matthew 16. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that um, the message today is going to be um, meddling in some of your life. I just want you to know that. Because in preparation, it's meddling in my life, as the Word always does. But this is going to go to right at the heart of, of some of our struggles in following Christ. So you're going to hold your place in, math, in Genesis 42. We'll also be in 43. So you can hold your hand there and turn over to Matthew 16 because I, I want to want to start here and then I'm going to finish here. And the reason I want to start here and when I want to finish here is because at this moment in Matthew chapter 16, uh, the disciples are at a a high point in their walk with Jesus. And if you could just stop reading at verse 20 in chapter 16, you could be in a real high moment as well. You could be celebrating with Peter and the disciples as they have come to this place where they recognize Jesus as Messiah. Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And they gave a few answers of what they were hearing in the crowd. But Jesus asked that question to lead to an even more profound question as who do those 12 believe that he is? Peter being the one who who tends to uh, not linger in the background but step forward with a word, steps forward and says, you are, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the one that, that Isaiah promised. You are the one that Jeremiah promised. You are the one that Malachi promised. You are the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises. And all of the disciples nod their head in agreement. Yes, Jesus, the Messiah. And then immediately after this, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, right off of the heels of this great moment with the disciples, Jesus immediately launches into a, a discussion that the, the disciples don't want to discuss. Now, now, Jesus is beginning to bring this up. We know that he brought it up at least three times, probably a lot more. The idea that he has to go to Jerusalem. The last place that Jesus needed to go at this particular moment is Jerusalem. The Pharisees, the religious leaders were already plotting to kill him. They hated him with a passion. The disciples knew that. And, and why Jesus was set on going to Jerusalem, they could not figure out in their mind, other than the fact that Jesus is going to roll up in there and he's going to kick the Romans out. He's going, to, he's going to take care of the Pharisees. He's going to take the throne of David. He's going to restore the kingdom of Jerusalem. And he's going to be the king. And these 12 are going to sit at his right and his left. 
and reign with him. So this whole idea about Jesus going, suffering, and dying is not something the disciples are willing to even consider. You see, the disciples have spent three years of their life watching Jesus and hearing Jesus teach and watching Him do incredible miracles, and they're not about to give that up. They're not about to entertain any ideas that Jesus' kingdom is anything more than going into Jerusalem and taking it back. So much so that Peter steps forward. And Peter pulls Jesus to the side, begins to rebuke him. And in our culture, this is what that would be. Peter gets all up in Jesus' face. The Messiah. The one, the one he just said is Christ the Messiah. Peter says, okay, Jesus, apparently you must be confused about what your mission is. So I need to pull you off to the side, get in your face, and correct the Son of the living God. You know why Peter did that? It's because Peter was not willing to give up control. Why is it that Peter steps forward and rebukes the Son of God? It's because Peter is not down with the changes that Jesus is talking about, and Peter wants to keep control of the situation, so he takes it upon himself to get in Jesus' face and rebuke him. He says to him, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Well, Peter, I've got a little bit of, um, I don't know, insight into what's about to happen, and as well as you do. Peter, you're not in control here. You never were. Peter has this idea that, that he has somehow got to the place where he's controlling the outcomes here. And when Jesus says what he says, and I promise you, the reason Jesus does this is to show the disciples that they are in fact not in control, that God's perfect will was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to die at the hands of the chief elders, and to resurrect the third day. Isn't it interesting that for whatever reason, the, the disciples never got their arms around the whole idea of Jesus coming back to life. I don't know if it's, they were stunned so much by his persistence to go to Jerusalem and die that they couldn't get past that. So this whole idea of Jesus coming back to life the third day was just lost on them, and all they could focus on was losing control of the moment. Is that a fear you have? This idea of following Jesus putting your faith in Him, accepting Him as Savior, right? That, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, resurrected the third day. You're down with that. I'm, I'm all in. But when we talk about Jesus being Lord of your life, meaning that, that He's in control of, of, of every aspect of your life, that's when we kind of recluse back a little bit because there's some areas of our life that, yeah, we'll give up to Jesus, but then there's some areas that, or hands off. Go back to Genesis. I want you to look at Jacob's life because Jacob has some control issues. Jacob is struggling. We haven't talked much about Jacob since we've been looking at the life of Joseph. We've, we followed Joseph all the way across 300 miles of desert to Potiphar's house. We followed him from Potiphar's house to the prison, and now we followed him from the prison to the palace, and now Joseph is second in command over the most powerful nation on the earth. A Hebrew boy who was sold as a slave is now the most second most powerful man on the face of the earth. Only God can do that. Joseph recognizes that. 
And through those 13 years in Potiphar's house and in political prison, instead of rejecting what God was doing, Joseph leaned into what his God is doing, surrendered to that, and, and as a result is, in, is blessing not only the nation of Egypt, but through Joseph's obedience, the entire world is being blessed because it's through Joseph that the food is being stored up. The seven years of famine have now spread its way across the landscape. People are starving to death. Animals are starving to death. Servants are starving to death. People are feeling the pain of this famine. And by this time, they're only a couple years in. The famine makes its, all, makes its way all the way to Jacob's house. And Jacob sends the boys into Egypt because they heard there was food. Jacob sends the boys to Egypt to get some food, to go buy some food. And as the, as the brothers make their way into Egypt, Joseph recognizes his own brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. And there's this tense moment that we get to experience that, that they were in the middle of, that, that we know that Joseph knows them, but the brothers don't, don't know who Joseph is. He, he looks Egyptian. He doesn't look like anything like their brother. Plus, it's been 20 years. And Joseph is going to test them because, remember, these brothers, when they were talking to Joseph, say to Joseph, hey, we're honest men. We're honest. Well, Joseph knows their heart. And Joseph is going to test them to see if truly anything has changed in the lives of the brothers. So he, so he, he gives them food, but he's going to keep Simeon, one of the brothers, by because these brothers had told Pharaoh, the second-in-command, Joseph, they had told Joseph, listen, we are honest men. We've got another brother at home, and, and we're not here to spy. We're not here to do anything other than to buy food. And Joseph says, I don't believe you. So the only way I can tell if you're telling me the truth is I'm going to put your brother in jail, let you guys go back, and you've got to bring Benjamin back to me. And if you come back here to buy food and you don't have Benjamin with you, then I'm going to put all of you to death. So the brothers leave and leave Simeon behind, probably in the same exact prison that Joseph was in. And as they're making their way back home, they check their bags of food. And you know what they find inside their bags of food? All the money that they had paid for that food. Now they're getting anxious. Now their heart is trembling. Because it would be easy for somebody to accuse these brothers of stealing the money and stealing the food. So they don't know anything else to do but to go back home. So they go back home, and we, we pick this up. We're going to pick this up in verse 35. And they're, they've been recounting the story back to Jacob of what happened in Egypt. Now, that journey has taken several days. So it's been a while since the boys have been back home. By the time the boys have get, gotten back home, the famine is striking the land hard. The people are hungry. Their kids are hungry. Jacob's grandkids are, are suffering. The servants are suffering. And when they get back home, they recount to Jacob what they experienced in Egypt. Well, what's going on in Jacob's heart? We've, we've seen what's going on in Joseph's heart. We've, we've seen how Joseph recognizes the providence of God in his life, and he leans into that providence, leans into that work, and God blesses him incredibly. We, we've seen the, the hand of God in the brother's life. Maybe for the first time last week, the, the brothers expressed the guilt and the shame of selling out their own brother. Well, what about Jacob? We're going to see something in Jacob's life today. We're going to find out that 
that Jacob has something going on in his heart. And always remember, God is more concerned about your heart than anything else. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Of course they're afraid. You've got the most powerful nation on earth who's controlling the flow of food into these areas of, of famine. The boys went with money to pay for the food, and when they get back, somehow the money is in their sack, and they are scared to death that Pharaoh's army may be actually looking for those boys because the Pharaoh's army have realized, and the ones who are distributing the food have realized, that the money is missing that these guys just paid. Remember, they've been accused of spying. Wouldn't it make sense that at this moment, fear would grip their heart? Of course. And when they saw, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Look at verse 36. And Jacob the father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Now, up until this point, where we're not really sure how much Jacob bought of the story that these brothers had shared 20 years earlier. You remember the story, right? They come home with Joseph's coat of many colors, and it's got blood all over it. And they come before Jacob, and these brothers in unison lie to their father and say to their father that Joseph has been torn apart by animals and he is no more. All the while knowing, and at that very moment, remember, they've got 20 pieces of silver in their pockets where they sold their own brother out. So they point blank through their teeth, lie to their father, but here we have an indication that Jacob has been a little suspicious all this time about the brothers and their story. For whatever reason, he looks at the brothers and he says to the brothers, you have, you have bereaved me of my children. It's almost as though Joseph and the whole story concerning Joseph, it's almost as though Jacob has a little bit of a problem believing that story that was told to him some 20 years previously. He, he knew the tension between the brothers. He knew how they hated Joseph his favorite. He says, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. Now, we've got to understand dad here for just a moment. Dad is struggling, still struggling with the loss of Joseph. The brothers come home and another brother is missing. Simeon is in jail. And now the brothers are saying to dad, Dad, unless we take Benjamin back, we'll not be able to buy any food. And if we go back without Benjamin, they're going to put us all to death. So, so Jacob is at a crossroads here. He, he doesn't know what to do, but what he's trying to do is control the situation. And he says, look, I have already lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. You cannot ask me to give up my favorite son, Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin took the place of favorite son. Both Benjamin and Joseph are sons of his favorite wife. Rachel? So, Jacob is coming to the end of his rope here. And Jacob says this. He says, all of this has come against me. All of this has come against me. What I need you to see here is how that Jacob is trying to control the outcome here. Now, you've got to understand, Jacob is not in control at all. The famine has painted him and pushed him into a corner, and he knows it. 
He knows that the famine is getting worse, and he knows that his family's suffering, and he knows that they've got to have more food, and the only place to get food is Egypt. But yet, Jacob says, all of this is against me personally. In other words, Jacob is taking this personally. And I can promise you that any time you try to take control of your own life, there's a selfishness that comes out. It's the byproduct of trying to control your own life out of your own ego and your own pride. When you try to control all the outcomes rather than trusting and walking with God and allowing Him to do the work that He's wanting to do in your life, and you try to hold on to it, and you try to control it, and you try to, to fix everything in your life when you know deep down you can't fix it. You've been trying for 20 years to fix it. And yet you still won't trust God with that area of your life. So Jacob says, it's all, it's, everybody's against me. It's a famine that's striking the entire land. Look, Jacob, this is not about you. It's about you and your trust in God. And that's what God is going to do. He's going to use all of these circumstances. He's going to use the pain of life to reveal what Jacob really trusts. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back. You see, Reuben understands the pressure of the moment. The brothers understand how serious this is. Jacob is just about Jacob. Jacob is saying, I can't afford to lose anything else, so therefore I have to be in control. Reuben, as you know, as we've looked at him, every, every time Reuben has stepped forward previously, it's been about Reuben. Reuben has been motivated by, by, by selfish motivation. Reuben only would step forward when it meant covering himself making sure that he didn't get in trouble, make sure that, that he was saw in a certain scene in a certain way. But here, all of a sudden, Reuben says, steps far and says, look, Dad, you've lost two sons. I'm going to give you my two grandsons. And you can even take their life if I don't bring Benjamin back. Wow, something's going on with Reuben. God's doing something in his life. God's providence has a way of revealing things in our life. God will use storms, difficulties, pressure to bring us to a place of full surrender. God has this amazing love and amazing grace to allow a famine to reveal what's really in Jacob's heart. Notice what Jacob says, verse 38. My son shall not go down with you. You know what Jacob's saying here? Jacob is saying, I am not going to trust God. Jacob is saying that we're going to continue to suffer in the famine. Now, now understand why Jacob is saying this. Jacob sees some sacks of food. Jacob sees the sacks of food, and Jacob thinks that there's enough food there to maybe get them through this famine. So Jacob is going to roll the dice, and Jacob is going to keep control, and Jacob is not for a moment going to give up his prized son, Benjamin, to go back to Egypt. You know what Jacob's going to do? Jacob is going to trust in his own ability. Jacob is going to hope that the famine runs out before the food does. Jacob's going to take control. He says, my son will not go back with you, for his brother is dead. Uh, look at this statement. This is incredible. He is the only one left. Now, how do you think that sounded to Reuben and Judah? 
How do you think that sounded to them? Jacob still has this favoritism going on to the point where when he looks at his family, he only sees Benjamin now that Joseph is gone. That favoritism is still playing out, and he says to his brothers, I cannot give up my only son, my only son of my favorite wife. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to shale or to the grave. What's amazing about that is Jacob can't see anybody else but himself. He's willing to take a chance to protect that which he loves the most. And can I just offer to you that, that what he loves most is Benjamin. What he loves most is Benjamin, who has taken the place of Joseph. He's still grieving over Joseph, but he will not give up Benjamin. He cannot take the risk. He will not take the risk. He will not trust God with Benjamin or anyone else. He has got to control the situation. So you know what God does? God says, okay, let's see how this works out for you. Because the famine is not going to end. Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt. Wait a minute. So the food that they had that, that Jacob was trusting was going to be enough to get them through and that the famine was going to end before the food did. Guess what has happened? The food has ran out. So Jacob's plans has not worked out at all like he thought they would. Isn't that how it often works in your life? I take control. I have a plan. And then all of a sudden... It falls to a million pieces. The famine was severe. And then guess what Jacob says to his sons? Go again and buy us a little food. Go again and buy us some food. Jacob is still not trusting God at this moment. He, he's simply saying to the brothers, you guys go on back. Now Jacob knows the circumstances. Jacob knows that Benjamin must go, but yet he's trying yet again to push those brothers to go back to Egypt without Benjamin. He's still trying to hold on to this. He's still trying to do it his way. But then Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brothers is with you. If you, will send, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face. Look at what verse 6 reveals. Notice that it says, Israel said. Isn't that interesting? Jacob is known by two different names. He's known by Jacob, but he was given a new name, Israel. And that new name is now being used in this text. You know what, you know what the word Israel means? It means God prevails. You know what's happening in the narrative? God is prevailing, and he always does. He always does. So all of a sudden now, we use the name Israel. Hey, Jacob, you might want to pay attention. God is prevailing here. You're not going to win. It's not going to be your way. You are not in control. You never were. So Israel says, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you tell them about Benjamin? And Judah says, look, we had no idea how this was going to play out, Dad. 
We had no idea that he was going to require us to bring Benjamin back. We were simply trying to be honest with him and tell him that we have a dad and family back in Canaan and we're out of food. And, and, and dad, there's no way we could have known that he was going to ask for us to bring Benjamin back. And so what does Jacob do? Well, he blames the brothers for the problem that they're in. All right, so when you take control of your life, you become selfish. You become self-focused. The world now revolves around you. And, and the more and the tighter you hold on to it, the tighter you pull it into your chest, the tighter you, the tighter you try to control it, you know what happens? You begin to blame everyone else. Is that not a symptom of the problem of the heart? It's your fault. It's everyone else's fault. I'm not going to take responsibility for the circumstances we're in. No, it's your fault. It's your fault that my brother, my son, my favorite son has to go back. And Judah says, how could we have known that it was going to turn out like this? Look at verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. This is how serious this situation is. They're out of food. Jacob won't give up control. The brothers are pleading with Jacob. Jacob, Dad, we're, we're going to starve to death if we don't go back. And the only way we can go back is to take Benjamin with us. God has a way of bringing you to a place where your power and your control and your influence and your talent will not pull you out of the situation you're in. You will come to a place in your life where no matter how talented you are, how experienced you are, how, how good you are, what a great leader you are, no, no matter how much money you have, influence you have, fame, there's going to come a time in your life where absolutely none of that will pull you out of the mess you're in. You've been there. Several of you have. I've walked with you through it. You have been in those places where you wanted to control it. You wanted to take control of it, but you simply couldn't because it was out of your control. And when you came to that moment, when you realized it was out of control, you know what God did? God smiled. Because that's the point. Maybe I'm the only control freak in the room. Help me out here, am I? Okay. Because y'all looking at me like, I'm glad that's your problem. Well, I'm pretty convinced it's not just my problem. Yeah, your, your power and control and influence will not save you. Lost person, is this not your problem as well? You see, you've heard the gospel. But instead of re responding through giving up your life, what have you done? You've taken more control of it. And here's what you did, or here's what you're doing. You're banking on going to church is going to be enough. You're, you're banking on serving an Operation Christmas Child this week is enough. You're banking on showing up here every so often, three or four or five, ten, twelve times. You're, you're banking, you're putting your trust in that. And ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to control the situation, are you? You're trying to have this relationship with God apart from surrendering to Jesus Christ. It's the same problem. You're still trying to control it. When God is saying, your talent your religion, your money, your time, none of that is going to bring you into saving faith. None of that is going to bring you to reconciliation with God. None of that is going to bridge the gap between you and God. None of that. So Jacob, Israel, 
Verse 11. Jacob, or Israel, has come to the end of his rope. Now Jacob is faced with giving up control. Notice what he does. Then their father Israel, God prevails, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to the man, a little balm, some honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take double the money back with you. And so that was returned in the mouth of your sex. Perhaps it was an oversight. You see what's happening here? Jacob is slowly opening his hands. He's slowly giving up the control. He's slowly saying, I see what's going on here, and there's no way that I can prevail. There's no way. So slowly but surely, he turns his eyes back to God. Have you ever been to that place when you're backed in the corner? And you've tried your power, you've tried your money, you've tried your fame, you've tried your influence, you've tried your great leadership skills, you've tried it all. And where did you find yourself? Still in the corner. And the darkness is pressing in. And I've been with some of you in those moments where in that moment, I got to see firsthand you open your hands to God and say, God, whatever the outcome, it's in your hands. God, whatever your will is in this situation, as bad as it is, as hard as it is, I've tried to take it back from you to no avail. And I have heard you pray the prayer, God, your will be done. So Jacob says, verse 13, Take your brother and rise and go again. That was hard. No doubt it was hard. No doubt it was hard for Jacob to look at his brother, to look at his son, Benjamin, thinking about what has happened with Joseph and, and, and give him over to the other brothers, which he may not exactly trust in this situation. But what other options does he have here? But this is beautiful. Look, look at what he says, verse 14. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Oh, my goodness. There is more here going on than just saying, God, you're in control. What Jacob is doing is surrendering himself to the will of God, however it turns out. God, I've already lost one. In his mind, he's already lost Joseph. In his mind, he's already lost Simeon. In his mind, he's getting ready to lose Benjamin. And that fear that is in him, and trust me when I tell you, fear is what motivates us to take control. If you get down to the bare part of what it is, we are afraid of how it's going to turn out. So the only way we can control the outcome is if we control the outcome. And fear is what's driving it. Now the fear is still there. The possibility of him losing Benjamin and Simeon, that is still real in his mind. But you know what he does? He sees God as bigger than his fears. He sees God as bigger and more majestic and more in control than he ever thought he could possibly be. 
So Jacob in that moment realizes just how weak he is, how little control he's got. So the only thing he can do is turn to an almighty, all-sovereign, all-providential God who has it all in the palm of his hand. That's what God's been wanting all along. That's what he wants for you. He says that God may grant mercy before this man. And that maybe he would send back your brother and Benjamin. So here... This is the beauty of this text. Because you, you and I know how the story's going to work out. So in that moment when Jacob opens his hands and gives up control, in Jacob's mind, the best way this could possibly turn out is that I get Benjamin and Simeon back. You see, he has no idea the blessing that God has in his hand that he's getting ready to pour out in Jacob's life. You know what that blessing is, right? Joseph. Not only is he going to get Benjamin and Simeon, he's going to get Joseph back. And see, that is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. You're holding on to something thinking it's the best, aren't you? You you think that if I hold on to this and I control this, then I get the outcome and I get the best the blessings of what I think is best. When God is saying, "Oh, you have no idea." If you'll just let go of that, I got something in store for you. You have no clue. It's not even on your radar. It hasn't even come up in your mind. Jacob has no idea that Joseph is not only alive, but he's the man these brothers have been talking to. And not only that, there's going to be so much food to preserve this family through the rest of this family. He has no idea. He's thinking that he's going to get a couple of bags of food when, in fact, he's going to be taken to Egypt and live in opulence through the rest of the famine. That's the God I serve. He's a good father. And if just for a moment I would quit holding on to the stuff I think is best and trying to control every outcome, and I, and I would just put my full trust in God, not be driven by fear, but to trust Him completely with every area of my life, God will put something back in your hand that is far more beautiful than what you've been holding on to. More beautiful than the bottle of alcohol. More beautiful than the needle and the effects you get from that heroin in your arm or that pill in your mouth. More beautiful from the high that you get from pornography. You get where I'm going here? You see, you're holding on to some things. And and God's been putting his finger on that thing, hasn't he? Over and over and over again. Because he knows that that thing is going to destroy your life. He's saying, trust me with this. Heard a story about a kid who lived in India. And this little boy loved to play marbles. Loved to play marbles. And of course, you know, in India it was in poverty. His family had grown up in poverty, and he didn't have much. But what he did have was a pocket full of marbles. And he was always looking for an opportunity to play a marble game. But there was one marble in amongst all the marbles that he had. It was this blue, shiny, you remember the marbles, right? You look at it, you can see the light through it. It was this blue marble, a big one. And it had some grooves worn into it. So he could, he could reach into his pocket, and he would, he would shuffle through all those marbles, and he would find that one, and he would rub it around in his hand as he was walking. And he's always looking for somebody else to play him in marbles. And one day he comes up to this girl in the village, and, and they get to talking. And initially he just wants to play her in marbles, and he finds out that she's got a, a bag of chocolates. Now, now chocolates are kind of hard to come by in his village. And there's one thing that he loves almost as much as marbles and as chocolate. And she's got chocolate all around her mouth, and she's got a whole bag of them, and she's just shoving them in. And the more, she, more he watches her eat that chocolate, the more that chocolate 
is more important than the marbles in his pocket. So finally, he's ready to strike a deal. So he says, hey, would you be willing, if I, if I, can I trade you my marbles for your chocolates? Well, after a little bit of thinking, the girl says, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So the little boy reaches in his pocket. Now, he knows his favorite marble's in there. And you know what he does, right? He, he feels around in his pocket until he finds that one blue marble. He shoves it down into the bottom of his pocket. And then he pulls the rest out and hands it to the little girl. She thinks she's getting all of his marbles, but when in fact, he's holding one back, his favorite. So she hands him the, the bag of chocolates. He starts walking off and something dawns on him. He looks back at her and says, is this all the chocolate? And she just smiles. You see, she was doing the same thing. She was holding back some chocolate, wasn't willing to give it all up. You see, I, I think that, that maybe you've got a blue marble pushed down in your pocket. And it seems like every time you get into God's Word, and every time you pray, and every time you hear a song on K-Love, or when you're worshiping here, it seems like God just keeps bringing up the one blue marble in your pocket you think He doesn't know about. And that blue marble represents an area of your life that you haven't given up to him. And God just keeps bringing it up, doesn't he? He, he just keeps saying that. We, we've, we've got to deal with that. And you don't want to deal with that because you want to hold on to that because that thing brings you comfort. It makes you happy. It's something you love. And, and certainly a loving God would never ask you to give up that. But just like with Jacob... The same is true for us. That thing, that's what you're actually worshiping. Did you know that? That's what's actually controlling your life. Look, you can, you can, you can sing all the songs you want to. You can put the mask on all you want to. But that thing that you're holding on to that you will not give over to God, that is actually what you're bowing down to. That is actually what you're worshiping. Because if you will not surrender that to God, then that has become your God, little G. It takes your time. It takes your attention. It's what you spend your money on. God is saying, you know what? I'm going to let the circumstances bear down upon you until we talk about that. Lost person is no different for you. You see, you're born into sin born into rebellion, your whole life is consumed with you. You are in charge, totally and completely. But are you really? No, you're not. You're not in charge. You never were. Your life could end today. And you have nothing in your talent, nothing in your money, nothing in your bank account, nothing in your leadership skill that's going to stop the reality that one day you're going to leave this world and you're going to have to stand before a holy God. If you stand there without Jesus Christ, if you stand there without any, with anything else, that thing you've been holding on to, if you think for a moment that you're going to be able to produce that thing before a holy God and say, God, this should be enough, God's going to look at you and say, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. So if you think for a moment that thing that you're holding on to is going to be enough, can I just tell you it's not? It would never will be. Follower of Christ, what are you giving your life to? What is it that's consuming you? What is it you shove down in your pocket thinking that God doesn't see it? What is that that 
is keeping you from worshiping the sovereign king of the universe. You see, we want all of our prayers answered. We want all the blessings, everything the kingdom has to offer. But God is saying, what about that in your life? What about that? I don't know what that is for you. But isn't it time we give up? Father in heaven, it's a hard thing in our American culture to give up. To give up the power, to give up the struggle, to give up control. But Father, I believe there's something we've been stuffing down in our pocket that we think is hidden from you. And for the disciples in this room, I I think you've got something to say about it. I think you've been speaking loudly through circumstances, through difficulties, through problems, through hurts, through pains. I think you've been speaking. But, Father, our tendency, my tendency is, is to grab on tighter and hold on to it, pull it closer to our chest, then to get angry, then to blame others. And, Father, you're more than welcome. You're more than willing to make our lives uncomfortable because you're concerned about our heart. And that's where the problem really is. It's in our heart. It's what we're giving our life to. And if it's not you, then it's less than. It's something that brings destruction, not blessing. So, Father, both for sinner and for saint, the issue is control. The answer is surrender. For the lost, in this moment, show them how grand and glorious and beautiful you are. In this moment, put your hand right upon what's going on in their life that they're holding on to, that they're worshiping. And Father, I pray that for the lost person in this place, they would simply give up. Giving up puts a smile a smile on your face. They would give up control to you. Repent and turn from their wickedness. Confess their sins. And put their faith in you. For the disciple, for the one who's come to that place where they put their faith in you, but Father, down through the time, down through years, down through days and weeks, Father, you've been using circumstances in our life to deal with that thing, whatever that thing is. So, Father, we have a choice this morning as your people. We have the choice of gripping onto it even stronger, thinking that somehow we're going to change the outcome or we can simply give up. So, Father, I pray that there will be some Christ followers in this room that would open their hands to your sovereign grace. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for your presence here this morning. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's sing this morning. If you have a need, I'm be more glad to pray with you.
have a family I want to introduce to you. Now, this is uh, Corey and Caitlin Walters. They have uh, three beautiful girls, and I, I, I don't know why I get their names mixed up. I don't know why I want to call one of them Penelope. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but anyway, they're beautiful girls, Kimber, Piper, and Juniper. And didn't Juniper just have a birthday? Poppers is today. I knew one of them. See, I still messed it up. So anyway, they're coming uh, uh, forward to join our church this morning. They came through Starting Point. I've got to know this family really well. They're already serving. I already jumped in. So uh, they're coming on a transfer uh, from another church, and we're glad to have you. They're going to be down front. If you would, take some moment, come down and introduce yourself. Um, welcome them into our family. We're glad to have you guys. We are. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, in those moments when we're not releasing control to you we know that your grace is sufficient we know that you're patient we know father that you continue to use the circumstances of our life but father we've got to realize we've got to realize that while we're taking control there's something you're wanting to do in our life that is beautiful and glorious far better than anything we could come up with and it really comes down to whether we trust you or not do we really trust you so, Father, I pray that the invitation would continue. Continue to put your hand right upon that one thing. That one thing that we're not willing to give up. And yes, Father, use all the circumstances and even the hardship of life. Because there's nothing greater than giving up and letting you have full control of our life. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 